anything that will get guns out of violent people's hands is number one. But this boyfriend loophole is very important because, again, as I said, we're talking about intimate partners. Fiscal authorities need to step it up, too. They, they've spent far too much, as we like to say, like drunken sailors with apologies to sailors. <laughs> and and that, needs to, that needs to improve. And uh, I believe he was trying to prevent uh, some kind of constitutional breakup uh, in our country by doing what he did. You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The January 6th committee held two more hearings this week, concluding with a look at what kind of pressure former Vice President Mike Pence faced from the Trump administration to try to overturn the election. Political analyst Roshini Rashkumar breaks down the hearings on All Talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz. So we're talking about, um, it, it seems like the committee members made it clear that they believe this is a crime. Uh, as you watch this play out, uh, do, do you think that uh, the the evidence on its own appears that this was a crime, what Donald Trump did to pressure Mike Pence, or and you're an attorney as well, or, or do you feel that they're pushing this agenda very hard? You know, first and foremost, they are pushing the agenda very hard. I mean, as we've talked about before, it really doesn't matter that this is a bipartisan panel running the hearings. It's not a court of law, and it doesn't exactly follow rules of evidence. However, it's hard not to think about what would be right in a court of law and what would be preposterous. So that's really hard for me to take those lenses off of this. They are pushing a narrative. They're pushing their agenda. And we're not hearing from some of the key people right there in their own words, right? And I know they had various witness testimony and things like that, transcripts of testimony. But we have to be very careful that uh, we don't take it in as if it is a court of law. And I also understand that the Justice Department is a little ticked at the committee because they're not sharing materials with the Justice Department, which would be the body that would bring uh, any kind of charges. And then we get into something I talked about with you guys last week. Do we want charges pressed against a former president of the United States? That sets up a whole other layer of optics and uh, really ru- a rough ride for our country. So as this was presented or as it's being presented, uh, how do you think uh, Mike Pence held up as all of this was going on around him, the pressure from the president, his interpretation of the Constitution, uh, him making this critical decision? Yeah, I mean, I think he held up really well. I mean, remembering it playing out in real time, uh, knowing that he was getting attacked, knowing he had fallen out of favor of the by the, with the president at the time as things were happening. Uh, you know, I think he did what he could do with the information he had and his un- own understanding. I mean, I think you go into an office like that and you know, not that many people have been the vice president of the United States. But you go into an office like that, having hopefully read the Constitution, trying to understand the article in the Constitution that covers the president and the vice president. And uh, I believe he was trying to prevent uh, some kind of constitutional breakup uh, in our country by doing what he did. Yeah. You know, the witnesses we heard yesterday, the attorney, Greg Jacob, and the judge, Michael Luddig, uh, Liz Cheney trying to show seemingly that the ultimate goal of these proceedings was that what Donald Trump was doing was unconstitutional and it was illegal. Do, do these claims of pressure against Mike Pence, I mean, we saw it at the time, it was very public and also private as well, but the pressure put against Mike Pence to overturn the electoral votes Does that rise to the level, in your view, of either one of those two, that it was unconstitutional or that it was illegal? 
Well, I mean, it's an interest. It's a great question, Tom, because it's an interesting kind of fine line. You would think that anything that's unconstitutional is also illegal. The thing is, the whoever the charging body is has the decision, uh, has great power to make those kinds of decisions. Something can seem at, at its surface unconstitutional, but charges may not end up arising out of that because I think you have to look at the totality of the circumstances. We will. We also didn't see uh, anybody at the time. Now he'd already been voted out of office uh, on January sixth, but. We also didn't see anyone at the time fully using the 25th Amendment um, and bringing that up, right, even Mm. if there had been talk of it. So, I I mean, that's kind of where the constitutional piece of this gets a little murky. I'm definitely not a constitutional lawyer, but that is, you know, in the time, you know, here we are a year and a half later or I guess whatever, a year-ish later, um, we can't necessarily put that 2020 lens on it. no pun intended on 2020, January 6, 2020 <laughs> right. um, is when the things happened. You have to somehow jump back in time. What was happening then? Who was doing saying what? We know a lot more now than we knew then. It is unfair for anybody to be uh, judged by any you know facts of the following 17 months. You, you know, this committee, uh, the legalities they're, they're bringing forth are trying to release the evidence. Uh, the committee chair, Benny Thompson, he has said the, the objective is not to dig up evidence to give to the Department of Justice. But Vice Chair Liz Cheney has said otherwise, suggesting she would like the DOJ, the DOJ to investigate. And now we learn the DOJ is itself is complaining that the committee has not yet shared enough information and it's hampering the Justice Department's investigation. So is the DOJ now, do you think, looking at criminal charges they're investigating right now against the former president? It's a very interesting foreshadowing, isn't it? Yeah. That is what is very, I mean, I don't want to even, I don't want to say scary because I'm not making kind of a subjective judgment on this about what I think should happen. But in general, we have to look at, and this is where, when when these people are put in the positions of 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 nationwide office or congressional or senate offices you know they're holding the public trust in their hands they're also holding the viability of our country in their hands so this isn't just some petty you know uh pocket crime that's happened if indeed a crime is determined here so we have to really really think about what you're doing and what kind of resources are you putting into something and are you creating more of a witch hunt or are you really trying to uphold something and no one has really shown me Mm. that they're doing anything but political bantering especially with tom as you pointed out you know both uh, cheney and thompson don't seem to be on the same page and they're both on the committee pence's legal aides testified that they repeatedly told donald trump and his team uh that uh that his plan uh, to get the vice president to block the election was unconstitutional. Do you see any of the information that was given to Trump in advance as any kind of evidence in a potential charge of conspiracy to obstruct a proceeding? Well, that is a hard one because we don't have the actual words of Donald Trump. What were you believing at the time? What did you say back to them when they told you that? Did you bring in the, you know, your constitutional law expert? Did you grab a federal judge and say, hey, we need we need you to give us some legal guidance on this over there and Donald Trump's camp? So it's one of those things. And you've heard that that saying, right? 
I serve at, um, you know, at the will of the president. Um, uh, and that's why there are times when secretaries of different departments will resign just because they fell out of favor of a president. So I don't know how much weight the aides of Pence saying that to Trump could actually hold up in a court of law, a real court of law, without truly knowing what Trump said back and what kind of advice Trump was getting individually and separately from Pence's aides. The Federal Reserve increased interest rates 0.75% on Wednesday to try to combat record inflation, sending the stock market into bear territory. Financial advisor David Sowerby from Encore Advisors on the Paul W. Smith Show. The adage that Friedman would say quite eloquently, too much money chasing too few goods. That money supply growth that if we were sitting here a year ago, M2 money supply was growing 13% at the end of 2020. It was growing 25%. That's monetary policy on steroids, put it simply. And it showed up in asset prices. Stock prices went higher. Housing prices went higher. Eventually, that sugar rush ends, and it ends in higher inflation, and that's what we're seeing today. And, it, and it's, it's critical that the Federal Reserve Board gets inflation under control, and they are the most important entity to do so. You know, uh, there there are some good points. Or we talked earlier, uh, trying to uh, continue with our mantra of uh, relentless positive uh, radio. Uh, it's not good that borrowing costs are going up, not for the individuals who need to borrow and wanted to buy a new house. Uh, But it is good news for savers. Uh, The rock bottom rates have penalized savers, uh, but this will, in a sense, help them, even if it's just a little right now. That's that's true. As it's been a very tough bond market this year, and as interest rates go higher, bond prices go lower, like a teeter-totter, that you're now able to get bond yields of 5% or higher. That's good for the saver, who is so often seeing their, uh, their interest rate on their savings less than 1%. What we don't want to have happen is that interest rate goes materially higher because inflation is, is still going higher. In that race between inflation and and yields to the investor and real income or inflation-adjusted income to the average household. Sadly, inflation usually wins that race. That's why the Federal Reserve needs to keep this under control. And uh, not so much under control, but just stop it in its tracks and get it to a more tolerable 3% inflation rate. So question, we were spoiled. Uh, we were. Uh, it was insanely cheap to take out mortgages or to get those car loans. Uh, We kind of got used to that. The sugar buzz came and went. And whenever there's a sugar buzz, you go up with the high and then you crash down. Um, And it feels like we're crashing down right now. We know about inflation. You have said to us recently, you don't think we're in a recession yet. Uh, I want to throw in another uh, uh, kind of a something we talked about years ago. But if you could further define uh, a term that's come rearing its ugly head back again, and that is stagnation, stagflation, I think is what it was. Am I remembering that correctly? Stagflation? You, you absolutely are. And that's the 1970s, even into the early 1980s, when you had rising inflation, rising interest rates, 
higher unemployment rates, beleaguered economic growth, that's stagflation, never want to return to that, certainly for the cyclical state like the state of Michigan. And it all culminated in early 1981. You, you had 10-year Treasury bonds yielding 16%. They yield 3.5% today. Mortgage rates, we might not like them in the 5% range, but they were in the 15 to 16% range then. That's why it's so imperative the Federal Reserve Board needs to uh, do their number one mission. That's price stability. Fiscal authorities need to step it up, too. They, they've spent far too much, as we like to say, like drunken sailors, with apologies to sailors. <laughs> and and that, needs to, that needs to improve. It simply does. And we're seeing the, 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 the detriment of that today. The Senate passed its own sweeping bipartisan gun control legislation last weekend. The proposed legislation would expand background checks for people under 21, incentivize red flag laws, increase investment in mental health services, clarify the definition of what a federally licensed gun dealer is, and close the boyfriend loophole. Guy Gordon takes a closer look at what that loophole is with Mavita Burris, Director of Development at Haven. I had a friend whose daughter was involved with a guy that was just an abusive jerk. Uh, they managed to get a uh, restraining order against him. In fact, he was ultimately convicted of domestic violence, and they'd heard that he was going to buy a gun. And they were scared to death because there was this so-called boyfriend loophole that is in the law. If you're convicted of domestic abuse, you can't buy a weapon. You're prohibited. Uh, when that is flagged in your background check. But if you are not a spouse or live in a significant other, you're not covered by that prohibition. With this bipartisan framework, that would end. It would include so-called boyfriends. Mavita Burris is Director of Development at Haven, which uh, advocates, defends, protects uh, domestic violence victims. And she joins us live this afternoon. Mavita, thanks for being with us. Gordon, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Uh, I, I, as a dad, I got to tell you, and as we approach Father's Day, this is one of those things that I know it scares the heck out of a lot of dads. Um, when when you look at homicides uh, by dating partners, do you have statistics on just how big this problem is? Well, um, one of the major things with what we call intimate partner violence, because domestic violence typically is something that can happen in the home with a brother, a sister, you know, family members. But that intimate partner violence means that there is a different type of connection. We have seen um, incrementally over this pandemic period an expansion of our calls, an expansion of the service, um, you know, work that we've been doing in this space. When we talk about um, the fatalities or those issues that really affect people's lives in the space where their partner or parent no longer here, those numbers tend to get muddled a bit just because they could be considered just a homicide or they could be considered, um, you know, an instance of violence. So it's hard to pinpoint. But what I can tell you, Guy, is last year we serviced over 2,772 people in this space. And that also includes up to 128 people in our residential program over the last year. So you can understand that the numbers are growing and the telephone calls to our crisis line, our phones never stop ringing. So how often does this boyfriend loophole rear its head? I mean, where you have 
a young woman uh, or a young man, I, I suppose it can go both ways, uh, come to you and say, look, I'm concerned that my former significant other is going to become violent. And I understand that he there's nothing I can do. My restraining order doesn't keep him from buying a gun. Well, we're, we're optimistic. We're pleasantly optimistic that this is part of the legislation. Mm-hmm. And we are hoping that, it, you know, anything that will get guns out of violent people's hands is number one. So whatever those things are, but this boyfriend loophole is very important because, again, as I said, we're talking about intimate partner. So that means that young man may not even live at the home. Right. But we've we've been looking at our numbers, and again, we've almost doubled in PPOs. So why do you, know, you why, we, do we know why that is, Mavita? Is well, it is the, it pan? The, we know there was that surge during the pandemic because we were all locked up there for uh, a while. I, yeah, yeah. I think you know. I I want to be very clear. I'm not a social worker, or a psychologist, or a psychiatrist. But one of the things that we're starting to understand and notice that mental health is 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 on the rise as well, and that isn't um, uh, uh, the space where people are just violently you know, upset, but it's the space where something could be a loss of a job, uh, you know, uh, instance that just set someone in a space where they can't control themselves. And then they go out and they seek, you know, violence at home and that escalates. But typically with it, and I want to go back to the boyfriend law, typically in those spaces, when uh, young people are not able to handle themselves in, um, in these, uh, they're growing and learning, and they're in these spaces where they're in an intimate situation with another partner. Sometimes that is their outlet. We're hoping that this loophole will make sure and and make uh, uh, make sure that it's permanent that there is no violent uh, young people, young men, women with guns in their homes or the ability to get a gun without uh, having a, a thorough background check. On May 30th, while driving home from Seward, Alaska, Sergeant First Class Andrew Chapitan witnessed a head-on collision. Sergeant First Class Chapitan halted his vehicle and pulled two occupants from a badly damaged and burning vehicle, risking his own safety in the process. After pulling the two occupants from the vehicle, Chapitan began to administer combat life-saving skills to the injured. While he continued to aid the wounded, he shielded one of the occupants from danger with his own body when the vehicle started to explode and send debris into the surrounding area. Sergeant First Class Chapton continued to assist EMS personnel till the wounded were life-flighted to higher-level care. That, a word-for-word reading of the on-base newspaper from the Army base in Bear Creek, Alaska, Sergeant First Class Andrew Chapton grew up in Clinton Township and joined the Army after graduating from Chippewa Valley High School in 2003. They'll do it for Potsui this week. For full interviews or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.